Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so today we are going to look at another Jeffersonian response to Alexander Hamilton's second report on public credit in which Hamilton made his call or his pitch for a national bank. And this opinion is going to come from George Washington's attorney general at the time, none other than Edmund Randolph. Now, Randolph is an interesting character. He had been a member of the Confederation Congress during the Revolution. He had also been governor of Virginia uh, around that same time period. And he was actually acting as governor of Virginia when the Constitution went out for ratification. He initially started off as a pretty strong anti-federalist, and then he eventually succumbed to pressure and voted for it because he was convinced that if Virginia did not ratify it, then Virginia would be invaded by the states who did. So his, his fear was disunion, and I wish that he would have remained strong. A lot of people in Virginia were very upset with him, especially those in the anti-federalist camp, were very upset with Randolph for basically doing a complete 180 on his constitutional um, views, I guess you could say, because he, he did have a lot of concerns about the potential for governmental consolidation in the new instrument. So what's interesting about him, too, is that while he was a member of the Confederation Congress, he actually acted unconstitutionally per the Articles of Confederation because he was one of the lead drafters of a bill to incorporate the Bank of North America as sort of a pseudo-national bank during the Revolution. So he's an interesting character. Now, during the war, he kind of excused his actions as far as the Bank of North America was concerned by saying, look, the war took precedence over everything, even constitutional scruples. As we get to this point in time where America is no longer in a state of war and everything's kind of settled down, his view would actually be extremely different. He would basically say, we are not in a state of emergency right now. Now is the time for us to have these scruples. Now is the time for us to have these arguments. And very similar to Jefferson, he's, he's going to point out that if we allow them to do this, they're going to be given a boundless field of power. They're going to be able to grasp every power that they desire is, is sort of how he phrased it. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to read to you all the first of two opinions that he sent to George Washington. 
President Washington at this point had solicited advice from Edmund Randolph. Again, Randolph was acting as attorney general. So he wanted his advice on the constitutionality of the bill. Now, Randolph is going to tell him it's not constitutional. Keep in mind, Jefferson's already told him it's not constitutional. But let's go ahead and see what Randolph had to say on the matter. So this is the first of two opinions. He says, The Attorney General of the United States, in obedience to the order of the President of the United States, has had under consideration the bill entitled An Act to Incorporate the Subscribers to the Bank of the United States and reports on it in point of constitutionality as follows. It must be acknowledged that if any part of this bill does either encounter the Constitution or is not warranted by it, the clause of incorporation is the only one. The legal properties of this corporation would be, first, to have succession until the 4th of March, 1811. So basically it would be in effect or its charter would extend until March 4th, 1811. And second, to purchase, receive, and retain real and personal property to an amount not exceeding 15 millions of dollars, including the capital stock. Third, to sell and dispose of the property. Fourth, to sue and be sued. Fifth, to have a common seal. And sixth, to make bylaws and do all acts appertaining to the corporation under certain restrictions prescribed in the act. These properties, with different modifications in some instances, belong to all corporations. Their importance strikes the eye. That the power of creating corporations is not expressly given to Congress is obvious. If it can be exercised by them, it must be, first, because the nature of the federal government implies it, or second, because it is involved in some of the specified powers of legislation, or third, because it is necessary and proper to carry into execution some of the specified powers. Okay, so Randolph here is making a case for strict construction, but he's also playing the same game that Jefferson and Madison had already played with Washington by saying, look, the power of creating corporations was expressly rejected in the convention. It was expressly not given to them. Now, states, on the other hand, they had every ability to incorporate any sort of monopoly they wanted to create or any sort of corporation they wanted to create. So you had state banks popping up. You had all different kinds of things. You had um, internal improvement monopolies popping up. So that would be like infrastructure projects of the day, so on and so forth. The states had every right to do that. But what Edmund Randolph is saying here is that Congress was specifically denied that power. And then think about what else he's saying. He says, if it's going to be exercised by them, then it must be through inference. And now let's see what he's got to say about that. But point number one, to be implied in the nature of the federal government would beget a doctrine so indefinite as to grasp every power. Okay, so Randolph wrote this letter on February 12, 1791, and think about what he's saying there. To, to be implied in the nature of the federal government would beget a doctrine so indefinite as to grasp every power. So he's saying the same thing as Jefferson with his boundless field of power that if we allow them to do this, then Congress has the unilateral authority to do whatever they want to do. So now he's going to build a case on that, and he's going to talk about the importance of a written constitution versus a common law system like what Britain had at the time, or, you know, I guess in our day, the UK. But he's going to contrast that. He's going to say, look, we have a written constitution for a reason. So let's see what he's got to say. Governments having no written constitution may perhaps claim a latitude of power not always easy to be determined. Those which have written constitutions are circumscribed by a just interpretation of the words contained in them. Nay, farther, a legislature instituted even by a written constitution but without a special demarcation of powers 
may perhaps be presumed to be left at large as to all authority which is communicable by the people and does not affect any of those paramount rights which a free people cannot be supposed to confide even to their representatives. Okay, so what Randolph means by that, and he's actually being overly kind to the intentions of Hamilton here, in my opinion, but basically what he's saying is that, look, even if you have a written constitution, maybe you could still give them some leeway if you did not clearly delineate what powers you wanted them to have. Then maybe we can infer that power resides in the government and not in the people, but he's going to go on to counter that. So let's see what he says there. Essentially, otherwise, is the condition of a legislature whose powers are described. An example of the former is in the state legislatures, of the latter in the legislature of the federal government, the characteristic of which has been confessed by Congress in the 12th Amendment to be that it claims no powers which are not delegated to it. And don't look now, but we have another Jeffersonian here saying that states' rights must be the bedrock and they're not using it at all in defense of slavery. Not in the abstract, not as it actually existed, nothing like that. He is not using this to defend slavery. He's saying, look, if we let them create a national bank, then they're going to take all power. They're going to become their own independent agent, just like Jefferson was saying. They're going to become their own independent agent, and they're going to be able to do whatever they want because their will and not our written constitution will be the limit of their powers, subject to their sole discretion So just keep that in mind. States' rights is the most powerful check that we have against the corrupt swamp creatures of D.C. And yet now we are so pusillanimous that we allow it to just be co-opted and we're afraid to stand under that banner because, oh my God, you're a neo-Confederate. They're going to call you that anyway. You might as well stick with the strategy that works because here is Randolph saying it, Jefferson said it, James Madison said it, so on and so forth down through the line. And yet Washington ignored it. So in my opinion, I actually do not believe that Washington was a very good president at all. But ran over, let's go ahead and see what else Edmund Randolph has to say about this bill. This last observation straightens the federal powers and opposes an opinion not unpatronized that Congress may exercise all authority to which the states are individually incompetent. If any subject of government from which the states are not excluded by the Constitution be beyond their jurisdiction within their own limits... Let it be shown. It cannot be easily conceived. But what if a subject should really exist? Is the argument less conclusive to say that the states must retain it because it is not given to the federal government than that the latter, although limited in itself, possesses it because it is not within the verge of a state constitution? While on the one hand, it ought not to be denied that the federal government superintends the general welfare of the states, It ought not to be forgotten, on the other, that it superintends it according to the dictates of the Constitution. And there is another endorsement of the Jeffersonian understanding or interpretation of the General Welfare Clause, is that, yes, the general government could operate in ways that would be conducive to the general welfare of the Union of States, but subject to the limits of the written Constitution. And back to it. The opinion above alluded to can have only one other object, namely that every institution to which a single state can give efficacy only within its own boundaries devolves on Congress. But the extravagance of such a position is manifested by a single circumstance that the cutting of canals throw two or more states at the will of Congress is one of its least consequences. Second, we ask then, in the second place, whether upon any principle of fair construction the specified powers of legislation involve the power of grant and charters of incorporation. 
We say charters of incorporation without confounding the question to the bank because the admission of it in that instance is an admission of it in every other in which Congress may think the use of it equally expedient. There is a real difference between the rule of interpretation applied to a law and a constitution. The one comprises a summary of matter for the detail of which numberless laws will be necessary. The other is the very detail. The one is therefore to be construed with a discreet liberality, the other with a closer adherence to the literal meaning. But when we compare the modes of construing a state and the federal constitution, we are admonished to be stricter with regard to the latter because there is a greater danger of error in defining partial than general powers. The rule, therefore, for interpreting the specified powers seems to be that, as each of them includes those details which properly constitute the whole of the subject to which the power relates, the details themselves must be fixed by reasoning. And the appeal may, on this occasion, be made to common sense and common language. Those powers, then, which bear any analogy to that of incorporation shall be examined separately in their constituent parts, and afterwards in those traits which are urged to have the strongest resemblance to the favorite power. 1. Congress have power to lay and collect taxes, etc. The heads of this power are 1. To ascertain the subject of taxation, etc. 2. To declare the quantum of taxation, etc. 3. To prescribe the mode of collection, and 4. To ordain the manner of accounting for the taxes, etc. Secondly, Congress have also power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. The heads of this power are 1. To stipulate a sum to be lent, 2. An interest or no interest to be paid, and 3. The time and manner of repayment unless the loan be placed on an irredeemable fund. Third point, Congress have also the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. The heads of this power with respect to foreign nations are, first, to prohibit them or their commodities from our ports. Two, to impose duties on them where none existed before, or to increase existing duties on them. Third, to subject them to any species of custom house regulations, or fourth, to grant them any exemptions or privileges which policy may suggest. The heads of this power with respect to the several states are little more than to establish the forms of commercial intercourse between them and to keep the prohibitions which the Constitution imposes on that intercourse undiminished in their operation. That is, to prevent taxes on imports or exports, preferences to one port over another by any regulation of commerce or revenue, and duties upon the entering or clearing of the vessels of one state in the ports of another. The heads of this power with respect to the Indian tribes are one, to prohibit the Indians from coming into or trading within the United States, two, to admit them with or without restrictions, three, to prohibit citizens of the United States from trading with them, or four, to permit with or without restrictions. And then fourth point, Congress have also power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. The heads of this power are one, to exert an ownership over the territory of the United States, which may be properly called the property of the United States, as is the Western Territory, and to institute a government therein, or two, to exert an ownership over the other property of the United States. This property may signify personal property of the United States, however so acquired, or real property not aptly denominated territory acquired by session or otherwise, but it cannot signify debts due from the United States, nor money arising from the sources of revenue pointed out in the Constitution. The disposal and regulation of money is the final cause for raising it by taxes, etc. 
Okay, so what Randolph is doing here is essentially going through Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, or at least the relevant pieces to this particular legislation. And he's saying, look, the Congress has the power to do these things that would even be remotely relevant to this situation. None of them actually make a bank necessary. And that's very similar to what Jefferson would say in his letter three days later, is that, yes, a bank may be convenient for this stuff, but a bank is not necessary, nor is it proper for us to do so. And so very interesting, very, very interesting. These are very strong arguments, in my opinion. These are very strong legal arguments against the constitutionality of a national bank, later on a Federal Reserve System. But let's go ahead and get back to it. This next part is very interesting. What Randolph is going to do here is actually talk about the preamble of the Constitution. So let's see what he has to say on that. Fifth point, the preamble to the Constitution has also been relied on as a source of power. To this, it will be here remarked once and for all that the preamble, if it be operative, is a full constitution of itself, and the body of the constitution is useless, but that it is declarative only of the views of the convention, which they suppose would be best fulfilled by the powers delineated, and that such is the legitimate nature of preambles. So let's have some context here. In the Philadelphia Convention, one of the original drafts of the preamble, they were actually going to say, we the people of the states of XXX. The reason they did not do that is they, some of the Federalists said, well, look, there's no way we can really know what states are eventually going to compose this confederacy, so we better not do that. And so they shortened it and just said, we the people. Now, Patrick Henry actually saw the danger in this immediately because he saw that the preamble could and probably would be a tool for abuse, especially if it was interpreted the way that Edmund Randolph is talking about here to say, well, look, we're acting in the aggregate sense of we the people of America, not we the people of the states of XXX. And the way that Henry phrased it in the Virginia Ratifying Convention was like this. He says that this is a consolidated government is demonstrably clear, and the danger of such a government is, to my mind, very striking. I have the highest veneration for those gentlemen, but, sir, give me leave to demand. What right had they to say, we the people? My political curiosity, exclusive of my anxious solicitude for the public welfare, leads me to ask, who authorized them to speak the language of we the people instead of we the states? States are the characteristics and the soul of a confederation. If the states be not the agents of this compact, it must be one great consolidated national government of the people of all the states. So Henry very early on saw the danger of the one America people interpretation that could arise out of the preamble. And Edmund Randolph here is totally dispelling that. As the Attorney General of the United States, he is saying that is not the correct interpretation of this. And mind you, Edmund Randolph was also at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Again, at that time, he was Governor of Virginia. So Edmund Randolph, in his official capacity, is saying that's the incorrect interpretation. And the correct interpretation is the preamble is nothing more than a declaration of purposes as to why we wrote this Constitution. So let's go ahead and get back to it. With this analysis of the foregoing specified powers, compare each of the corporate powers and where is the similitude? It lies, say, the advocates of the bill in the power to lay and collect taxes, etc., because it facilitates the payment of them and that of borrowing money, because it creates an ability to lend, and that of regulating commerce, because it increases the medium of circulation, and thus encourages activity and industry and that of disposing and regulating property because the contributions and the interest of the United States in the bank are property of the United States. Of each of these reasons, something will be said in their order. 
The incorporation of a bank can facilitate the payment of taxes only by creating a faculty to pay or by supplying a deficient medium or by rendering the transportation of money to the seat of government more convenient. But to lay and collect taxes is, in fact, to demand and receive a public debt rest in the mode of procuring the money on the resources of the debtors. And as to his transportation, surely there are many other vehicles besides bank bills. To borrow money presupposes the accumulation of a fund to be lent and is secondary to the creation of an ability to lend. By regulating commerce in order to increase the medium of circulation cannot be intended any of the commercial powers designated above, these being very remote from the incorporation of a bank. Nor can it be imagined that it is intended to reach the emission of paper money. What construction remains by which to regulate commerce can increase the medium? Only the emission of coin, which is licensed in terms by another clause. To dispose of or to regulate property, even bank stock itself is utterly distinct from the incorporation of a bank. For the contributions on which the bank stock arises go upon the principle that a bank already exists. How else can contributions be made to it? But in truth, the serious alarm is in the concentrated force of these sentiments. If the laying and collecting of taxes brings with it everything which, in the opinion of Congress, may facilitate the payment of taxes... If to borrow money sets political speculation loose, to conceive what may create an ability to lend, if to regulate commerce is to range in the boundless mazes of projects for the apparently best scheme to invite them from abroad, or to diffuse at home the precious metals, if to dispose of or to regulate property of the United States is to incorporate a bank, that stock may be subscribed to it by them, it may without exaggeration be affirmed that a similar construction on every specified federal power will stretch the arm of Congress into the whole circle of state legislation. And Edmund Randolph just did a masterful job in wrapping up this argument. So he states here towards the end of it that, look, again, if we allow them this power, if we take this broad of an interpretation of the Constitution, nothing will be off limits to them and they are going to totally override the state legislatures. They're going to totally override our plural society. So very, very strong argument here from Randolph, again, acting in his official capacity as the attorney general of the U.S. at the time. And let's go ahead and read the last little bits here, and then we'll wrap up our episode for the day. The general qualities of the federal government, independent of the Constitution and the specified powers, being thus insufficient to uphold the incorporation of a bank, we come to the last inquiry, which has already been anticipated. Whether it be sanctified by the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the powers vested by the Constitution. To be necessary is to be incidental, or in other words, may be denominated the natural means of executing a power. The phrase, and proper, if it has any meaning, does not enlarge the powers of Congress, but rather restricts them. For no power is to be assumed under the general clause, but such as is not only necessary, but proper also or perhaps expedient also. But as the friends to the bill ought not to claim any advantage from this clause, so ought not the enemies to it to quote the clause as having a restrictive effect. Both ought to consider it as among the surplusage which as often proceeds from inattention as caution. However, let it be pronounced as an eternal question to those who build new powers on this clause whether the latitude of construction which they arrogate will not terminate in an unlimited power in Congress. In every aspect, therefore, under which the Attorney General can view the act, so far as it incorporates the bank, he is bound to declare his opinion to be against its constitutionality. 
Signed, Edmund Randolph, February 12th, 1791. And so Randolph, again, ends this argument with a grand slam. I love what he says there. However, let it be propounded as an eternal question. So for all posterity is basically what he's saying there. Eternally, let it be a question to those who build new powers on this clause, meaning an expansive reading of the necessary and proper clause, whether the latitude of construction which they arrogate will not terminate in an unlimited power in Congress. And so there again, we have decentralization as the only way, states' rights as the only way to prevent this from happening. You cannot let Congress be its own agent. You cannot do that. And how wonderful was that during the pandemic when we saw states like Florida realize the error of their ways and say, you know what? Yeah, we overreacted. We're going to roll this back and then not comply with a lot of federal stuff. How awesome was it when Texas finally got its head out of its butt and started doing that? So Edmund Randolph here setting the stage, really telling us, look, if you let them do this, it's over. It is over. Jefferson said the same thing. Three days later, on February 15, 1791, Jefferson said the exact same thing. To let them take one step beyond their written boundaries is to give them a boundless field of power or in Randolph's phraseology, an unlimited power. So thank you all so much again for tuning in today. And I do just want to remind everybody that we are expecting a child. So if you're not already a contributing member, please consider becoming one so we can pump up our diaper fund and definitely help me keep the show going because I want to keep bringing you guys this high quality content. So just keep that in mind. But thanks again for your time and I'll talk to you all next time. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your goldbacks today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.